Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. With Rabo Hair. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which I play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, I will be discussing Marble Madness. Now, did you know there was a sequel to Marble Madness released in arcades? Well, kind of. We'll talk a little bit about that game later in the episode. But before we get started with this episode's game, let's check the Daily Sun for this week's Paperboy headlines. Welcome back to Sprite Castle. I just got back from a two-week, a one-and-a-half-week road trip that took me up to Hurricane, West Virginia, to attend Boat Fest, the retro gaming convention thrown by Boat of Car Schaller. Uh, he is the host of the Amigos podcast, along with his partner in crime, Amigo Aaron. Uh, Boat Fest had, uh, I don't know, 30 to 40 attendees, something like that. I didn't take a exact head count, but it was a fun two-day event in West Virginia where we gathered, played retro video games. We did live shows. There were speakers. There were contests. There were giveaways. Uh, there was a uh, swap uh, swap table, swap event. There was food. There was all kinds of great stuff. It was a really, really fun weekend. Uh, if they do it again next year, which I believe they are planning on doing, I will be attending again. It's a long drive for me. I'm not going to lie. I think it's about a 16 hour drive for me. We broke it up in a couple of days. We drove and stayed in, uh, Rolla, Missouri, the first night, my wife and I drove to Rolla, which is about six hours away, which made the second day of driving a little better. And then after spending the weekend in Hurricane, West Virginia, I went on to Washington, D.C., where I stayed and worked for a week. And then we drove home. We did all kinds of fun stuff. I've been blogging about that adventure. If you want to read some of those fun stories about going to the Lost Baggage store and going to the Mothman Museum and the Flatwoods Monster Museum and some of the other things uh, that I did on that trip, then go check out RobOHara.com. I've written blog posts about all those adventures. I also wrote a blog post about how I tripped and fell in Washington, D.C. Fell right on my face. I was walking into a restaurant that I hadn't been in before. It was dark inside the restaurant. The floor was dark. There was a step I didn't see. I had just come in from outside where it was bright to inside where it was dim. I was putting on my glasses. It was this whole combination of things that led to me falling uh, straight down onto the concrete and then sliding like I was in a cartoon. I slid on my knees and elbows. It has been... I think two, a little over two weeks since I got home. So probably a week and a half since I had this little incident and I am still sore. I still have bruises on my knees around the scabs. It's terrible. And, and worse is my back was hurting for several days. So I have kind of been living off of ibuprofen <laughs> with the occasional aspirin in between doses, but I'm getting better. I'm getting better. So uh, that has been, uh, that was an unfortunate side effect. And let me tell you, riding home in a car <laughs> for 15, 16, actually from DC, it's about 22 hours, uh, which we broke up over multiple days is not fun. Uh, I also had while I'm telling stories here, I also, while on our way home, we stopped at a hotel in Little Rock, Arkansas. I crossed paths with a woman who was carrying a canvas, like a canvas that you would uh, paint on. Uh, it was large. It was probably three foot by four foot, but I couldn't see what it was. She was carrying it backwards. And this was late at night. We're checking into the hotel. It was about 11 o'clock at night after we'd been on the road for 12 hours. And when I asked her to turn the canvas around to see, I was like, I got to know the story. What are you, what are you carrying this canvas around for? And she turned it around and it was a painting of Falcor the Luck Dragon from the never ending story flying with the dude from the Big Lebowski riding on his back. Now I have learned since that this is a internet meme that someone had Photoshopped those two characters together. And so this is kind of a painting of that meme, uh, which I didn't know at the time, but it doesn't make it any less funny uh, to me. And so we had a good laugh. I, I told her at the time I said, 
what are the odds that you and I would cross paths in a hotel in Arkansas? The only two people here that might get both of those movie references. <laughs> um, so it seems like that would be the end of the story. The next morning when we got in the car, my wife had taken a picture of me standing next to this woman and she's holding her painting. I tweeted the picture out and the tweet got something like 10 likes and then it got a hundred likes and then it got a thousand likes and then it got 2000 likes. And it was within an hour or so it was the most popular tweet I had ever tweeted. Uh, it went to 5,000 likes and 10,000 likes. And as the day went on, it went to 20,000 likes and 30,000 likes. <laughs> and uh, when it finally died out, it is almost at 90,000 likes with a couple thousand uh, actually, I think six or 7,000 retweets and uh, maybe 1,500 or more comments. So it has been, uh, it was my first tweet that I can honestly say went viral, uh, which I learned a lot of things. I'll be writing a blog post about this in the near future. But uh, the very first thing I learned is that it literally breaks Twitter. Uh, it breaks the way that, that I use Twitter. Um, when you have Every time you open Twitter and it just says you have a hundred unread notifications and no matter what you do, you can't, uh, it just keeps refreshing and saying there's a hundred notifications. Uh, normally when I tweet something out, I get two or three responses and I can interact with those people and, and we have a fun time. But when your notification, uh, system just locks up, in fact, uh, Twitter, my Twitter app on my phone popped up a message and said, we've noticed that you have a very popular tweet. Would you like some help? in managing this. And I clicked, no, what would I need your help for? And so my Twitter notification status was just clogged for about three days. It just became unusable. So it was a, a, a very fun experience. Uh, I don't want to tell the whole story, but I will tell you since you're listening to this podcast is that I did eventually find the woman's name. We have made contact and I have purchased the painting. <laughs> so uh, apparently the painting wasn't finished. I thought it looked great, but it wasn't quite done. So she has spent the rest of this week finishing up the painting, and it is going to be mailed to me later this week. And then I can write an entire story from beginning to end about the entire experience. So that will be fun. Um, let's see, what else do we have going on? Oh my gosh, I got back to the castle and the first thing I noticed were all these kings of the castle that were hanging around the front door. For the last episode in which I played Top Gun, the King of the Castle song was Dreams by Van Halen. Now, if you're uh, a child of the 80s like I was, you know that the video of Dreams features the Blue Angels flying in formation. You have all these jets flying around, which is obviously the connection to Top Gun. I got some uh, other connections that I not... Uh, I, that wasn't my original intention. One person mentioned that uh, the song talks about flying high like you do in Top Gun, which I also allowed. And someone pointed out that uh, the song Dreams is released in the same month and same year that Top Gun was released. So I pretty much uh, just took everything on on this month's submissions and it's a good thing we did because we actually had the blue angels sitting outside on the runway most of you uh may not know that there's a runway that backs up to the sprite castle you got to get all this old equipment in and out of the castle somehow and the blue angels were waiting to take people for free rides this month everybody had a great time so congratulations to this month's kings of the castle which included steve sharippa joseph sharippa donovan spoonfed scott van drasick mike mclaughlin tad m bill spear and edward smith congratulations to all you guys uh if you want to participate and possibly become a vip member of the king of the castle crew all you've got to do is listen for the 8-bit song, which will be played towards the end of the episode. If you can name that song, send an email to me at robohara at robohara.com. Put King of the Castle in the subject so I don't lose it and tell me not only the name of that song, but what connection it has with the game I reviewed. Now, let's move forward to some Commodore 64 news. Uh, this isn't really Commodore 64 news, but I wanted to... I, you know what it is. I'm going to tie it into a news story. Um, Carlton Handley is a Commodore 64 
game developer. He made Run and Gun, which is a Commodore 64 game. He made Millie and Molly. He has made several other Commodore 64 games, and he has turned all of his games uh, to free for download on his itch website. So uh, if you look up carltonhanley.itch.io, you can find all of Carlton's games and you can download them legally for free. Now, in celebration of this last week on Twitch, I streamed uh, myself playing multiple Carlton Hanley releases. Uh, I did get uh, contacted by Carlton on Twitter, who let me know that I was not very good at his games <laughs> in a joking manner, of course. Um, and that is true. Uh, one of the things, uh, it is my eternal curse to enjoy video games and yet be so terrible at them. Uh, but I have spent the last couple of days doing some deep dives back into Millie and Molly, which is a fun uh, puzzle type game where you, if you haven't played it, you go around in a uh, a, a 2D platform style layout, and you have to uh, clear each level of all the monsters. And when you get to a certain point, you get Millie and Molly, and you have to switch between the two characters to solve these puzzles. It's really fun. Uh, Run and Gun is a little bit faster action platform shooter type game, but it's also fun. It's the type of game that I'm not particularly good at, uh, but I do enjoy playing. So uh, if you want to check out some of the best games that have been released for the Commodore 64 in the past few years, go check out Carlton Handley's site over on itch.io and check out his games that he has made free available for download. The Paperboy headlines would not be complete without another mention of a Kung Fu Flash firmware. A firmware update version 1.41 was released. Uh, this improves some of the disk emulation routines. That makes it compatible with even more games. But more importantly, it allows you to change the drive number, which is very useful if you're using something like the Kung Fu Flash to transfer from physical floppy disk to disk images or back. That way you can chain these things. And if you have a, uh, as you know, a 1541 comes uh, physically hardware set to be device eight, uh, you can add a switch or you can scrape off these contacts and modify it to make it a drive nine. Um, or, you, you know, you can add a couple of switches so you can change it anywhere from uh, eight, nine, 10 or 11. Uh, but it's much easier to be able to do that with software on the Kung Fu Flash Kung Foo Flash cartridge. <laughs> there, I got it out. Um, so that is a uh, improvement that uh, will be will prove to be very useful if you're using it for that. Uh, this month, maybe this year, marks the 50th anniversary of Pong, and so we saw several Pong releases for the Commodore 64. There's one called Pong Clone that I checked out that is a pretty faithful rendition of Pong. There's also one called Poing, P-O-I-N-G, that uh, looks, physically it looks much more like Arkanoid or something like that, but it is, uh, at its root, a Pong clone. So if you're into Pong, <laughs> and uh, 50 years, you're not burned out on it yet, you're, you're, you're keeping the candle going, uh, then uh, go check out Pong Clone or Poing, and I'm sure that we will see other Pong clones emerge throughout the year. Uh, we've also uh, got the results uh, or the submissions for Reset 64's 4K Craptastic Game Competition. Uh, this is an annual event in which people write Commodore 64 games that will fit in 4K of memory or less. And uh, one of the games that was submitted is called Marble Boy. It was written by Roman Werner, and I have been playing that, and it is really fun. First of all, it is amazing if you play it. It's got music. It's got uh, different uh, different boards and each board has different levels. Uh, it was described as a combination between marble madness and buggy boy. You have to go around and pick up flags in a certain order. It is a top down game. It's not an isometric game, but uh, uh marble boy. That was the one that I played the most. There's several other um, Petaskey and uh, some other submissions, but Marble Boy is the one I've been playing the most. So if you're looking for a new release, that's pretty fun. We also saw, um, 
some new footage of Zeta Wing 2, which has been released by Sarah Jane Avery. Now, Sarah Jane Avery, everybody that's in the Commodore scene knows her name. She's released several shooters over the past few years. She released the Briley Witch Chronicles, which I did not beat. I got about two-thirds of the way through, and it's uh, not – I didn't beat it because it was difficult. I didn't beat it because I just haven't had the time to put in and finish it. But uh, she has uh, made some of the – best quality Commodore 64 releases over the past few years. Uh, I follow Sarah on Twitter. She recently had some tweets talking about maybe getting away from the retro community, which uh, you always don't. I never know what to say when someone says that because number one, your mental health has to come first. If you're having uh, uh, not having a great experience with the retro community, then nobody blames someone for taking a step back or taking some time off, especially from social media. On the other hand, it would be a big loss to all of us who have enjoyed playing her games. So uh, we certainly wish Sarah Jane Avery the best. The leaked footage of, I don't say leaked, uh, the footage that has been released of Zeta Wing 2 is another parallax scroller as a sequel to Zeta Wing. I can tell you that at the uh, Boat Fest event, I had several of Sarah Jane Avery's games on display. People knew, they recognized them, they knew who she was, they knew what the games were, people enjoyed playing them. So uh, I know a lot of people will be looking forward to Zeta Wing 2 when it is eventually released. Uh, I had several people over the past week send me a link to the Commodore 64X Kickstarter. Now, the Commodore 64X has been floating around on Facebook for a while, I've been seeing notifications, but the official Kickstarter is out there. And so what is this thing? This is, uh, I remember this being, uh, bounded around a few years ago. Uh, it was a Commodore. It's a modern computer that's come shipped in a Commodore 64 style case, the classic bread bin. Um, and so this is a Kickstarter to get that off the ground. Now on the Kickstarter, they are offering three different options and each of the options is available in eight different colors. So if you always wanted a green bread bin or a blue or a red, uh, classic Commodore 64 and weren't very good at painting or didn't want to give that a try, then this is your, uh, chance to do that. The Kickstarter needs their goal is $30,000 and they are currently at $172. So they have smashed through their goal. They're more than five times over their goal and there is still time left. Now the rewards that I looked at, there are three different models and each of these models, it says they are 20% off of the retail price. So essentially if you buy one now, you can get it 20% off of the retail price. If you're thinking about buying one later, then it does kind of make sense to purchase one. Now, my question would not be whether or not that's a good deal because obviously 20% off of something is good. My question is who's interested in buying this. So let me talk about the three different models uh, or layers that they have on their Kickstarter uh, levels, I should say. The uh, entry one at $135 is the case only. So you are getting a Commodore 64 uh, bread bin case in one of eight colors and a uh, keyboard, functional keyboard that has cherry switches. Um, it doesn't, and maybe it did. I, I didn't write down if it says how it connects uh, to an internal motherboard. I'm assuming maybe a USB connection or something like that. That would be great so that if you bought this, you could put anything from a Raspberry Pi to um, maybe it just has a standard keyboard connection. I just really don't know. But um, but the that's the first level, a $135 option for the case only. Uh, there is on the side, uh, in addition to that, a $300 24 inch monitor, which also has retro styling. I mean, this is a modern flat screen, 24 inch monitor, but it's uh, designed. The case is designed to match that. So things are getting expensive already. <laughs> uh, the second, the middle tier for this computer is, and this is us dollars is right around $450. This is called their extreme PC. Although it doesn't, 
seem very extreme for $450. It comes shipped with Commodore OS Vision. I'm not really sure what that is. It says that it can run applications, it can run Netflix, and it says even compatible with Windows 11. Well, right there, that is interesting to me because my main machine, the machine I'm recording this podcast on right now, the one that I use every day for all of my stuff that I use Photoshop and, and, um, uh, audacity and, and Sony Vegas and all these heavy applications is not windows 11 compatible. <laughs> it tells me that my processor is way too old. So uh, it's interesting that this is new enough that says it's compatible with Windows 11. It goes on to say that it has a quad-core 2.6 gigahertz Celeron processor, 4 gigs of RAM, expandable up to 8 gigs of RAM. By the way, I'd like to I would love to hear anyone who has run Windows 11 uh or even Windows 10 on 4 gigs of RAM. It is a fairly miserable experience. Uh, it also comes with a 250 gig hard drive. And this is uh, again, the $450 extreme PC level. Uh, and finally for, uh, just over $1,100, you could get what is called the 64 X ultimate right off the bat, bad name. We have an Ultimate 64. It's a completely different product. And so you should not call your product the exact same name as an existing product. Um, but the 64X Ultimate is a i5 processor. It has an NVIDIA GTX 1650 video card. It says it comes with 8 gigs of RAM and is expandable to 64 gig. It has built-in Wi-Fi. It has a 500 gig hard drive with a SATA docking station, so you can add a second hard drive uh, without opening the case. It says the retail price of this will be $1,425, but right now you could get it for um, $1,100. They also talk a little bit about some of the other products that they are thinking about expanding into, like a Commodore 16 and some other stuff. Man, that is a lot of talk about a Kickstarter that I <laughs> won't be backing. <laughs> uh, it's not because not I don't hate the idea, and I think... Uh, the, the cool idea, the best, the best thing for me is the $135 case only option where you get the keyboard and you get the case and then you could put something fun inside there. Uh, it really depends. I mean, anybody who's ever used a C64 bread bin keyboard, I don't know that you want to use that as your daily driver, uh, for, you know, typing a hundred words a minute or typing all day doing something like that. So I don't know if you are interested in this Kickstarter, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your feedback and see what you guys think. But I think that might be, um, and one thirty five is that a good price for a keyboard, uh, and a case? I don't know. I mean, you're not, you know, for the, uh, purists, you're not, uh, you know, defiling an original case. So you've got that going for you on the other side. Um, I, you know, I don't know modern prices, but for many years, you could have easily bought a working Commodore 64 for $135 and used the case for whatever you wanted. Uh, in my book, Commodore, in the opening story, I talk about buying one that didn't work for $3. So, um, $135 for a project seems high to me, but you know, maybe not in the modern market. So anyway, if uh, any of that interests you, I would love to hear from you. Uh, if you have feedback about that story or any of the news stories or any episode or anything that has to do with Sprite Castle, you can email me at robohara at robohara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a message on the podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. If you'd like to support my shows, visit my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. All my Patreons get access. It's really patrons. I don't know why I have Patreons here. It's all my patrons get access to behind the scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page. Again, that is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. And by the way, shout out to uh, Drazoo. 
Shout out to uh, Petzl. Shout out to Jason Warns. Uh, if there's any others that I'm not thinking of, of course, Boat and Amigo Aaron, but all of my supporters on Patreon who I got to physically meet and connect with uh, last weekend or weekend before last at Boat Fest. It was a, a great time, and I had a great time meeting all you guys. Anyway, those are this week's headlines brought to you by my local paperboy who just crashed after running over a big black marble. Now that we've covered this week's news, let's discuss this week's snack. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking snack. While attending BoatFest, I was able to try for the first time a West Virginia pepperoni roll. I had never heard of a pepperoni roll before, and I had certainly never eaten one before. Uh, According to Wikipedia, pepperoni rolls are country rolled dough filled with sticks or slices of pepperoni. The treat has roots in the coal industry where Italian immigrants came to work in coal mines of West Virginia. Um, It's funny how much we take Italian food uh, and specifically pizza for granted, I just watched a documentary called Pizza, a Love Story. It's a 2019 documentary. Um, of course, I worked for Pizza Inn and Pizza Hut and um, Mazio's Pizza when I was a teenager. And so I worked, I did a lot of time in pizza uh, fast food restaurants, but I didn't know anything about the history of pizza. Uh, the first pizzeria in the United States was opened in 1905, which is just a little over a hundred years ago. Uh, there is a story that gets passed around that pizza did not catch on until after world war two, after soldiers who had been stationed in Italy returned to the United States, but that has kind of been disproven. Uh, really there were a couple of things that spread, Uh, The adoption of the pizza industry, one, is that it was shown on television. Uh, There was an episode of The Honeymooners where they ordered a pizza. There's an episode of I Love Lucy where she uh, works at a pizza restaurant. So that was one of the uh, things that propelled the adoption of pizza. And the other thing was advances in technology. There were uh, refrigerators and freezers uh, that became... uh, you know, more common in people's homes in the 1950s. Uh, Pizza Hut opened in 1958. Little Caesars opened in 1959 and Domino's in 1960. And Domino's was uh, the first company that really pushed timely home delivery of pizza. And um, this was also a combination with those freezers uh, where they began putting frozen pizzas in supermarkets so people could buy a frozen pizza, take it home, and then put it in their freezer at home and then cook it later. So, um, But it's amazing to me to think that Domino's uh, opened in 1960, which is 13 years before I was born. Um, but you know, to me, my whole life, uh, we, we've always known uh, eating pizza and, and having pizza delivered. But to just think that, you know, the people, you know, 20 years before I was born, that really wasn't really a thing. It's just a strange thing to uh, um, to think about. Anyway, uh, back to pepperoni rolls. They were first sold in 1927. Again, uh, they were made mostly for, by uh, Italian immigrants who had come to West Virginia. They were popular in the coal mines uh, and uh, for those people that were working on the railroads, um, that that was kind of where they got their start. And so that's why they are associated with West Virginia. They, they uh, became popular in that area. And uh, one of the attendees' wives, her name is Barbie, brought pepperoni rolls for everyone uh, at the convention. And uh, they were because the way it worked out, it's a long story, but they ended up being free, uh, even though people could donate, which I did. Um, but, uh, uh, there were so many of them there that I just thought, well, I'll just have one. And so I did have one. Uh, and it was so good that later when I walked back by, there were still some left, everybody had eaten. And so I got a second one (laughs) and, uh, took it to my hotel room where I later, uh, when I went up to my room, I took a little break in my room and I had that other pepperoni roll, man, oh man, it was so good. It was just, uh, you know, like a doughy 
kind of bread roll, almost like a the kind of bread like I would associate with pigs in a blanket, where you know it's the same type of thing, but with a um, uh, you know hot dog wiener in the middle of it, and this was more you know like a pepperoni that had kind of melted so you've got the oil and and uh uh probably fat from pepperoni that has has leaked and, and found its way into the bread making it soft around there and uh man it was so good i uh in the hotel room i had that second one and it uh uh just slid right down and speaking of sliding down marvel madness was published for the Commodore 64 in 1986 by Electronic Arts. It is a game for one to two players that uses joystick controls. Uh, this game was published by Electronic Arts. Electronic Arts has... Uh, We've talked about them on many other episodes. I have covered uh, several Electronic Arts games on the show, including Mail Order Monsters. We did Archon. Um, we did One on One. I know we did Skate or Die. So if you want to hear more about the history of the company, you can check out one of those episodes. Uh, this port of Marble Madness was done by Will Harvey. Now, Will Harvey started off as a game developer, uh, but after he made his first game, he realized he needed an easier way to make music for his games. And so he developed Music Construction Set, which you may also know as a release by Electronic Arts. Will Harvey went on to make Will Harvey's Zany Golf, which is a fantastic game. And when you think about it, it's not all that different in concept from Marble Madness. I mean, obviously it's a mini golf game. It is different, but it is a isometric game in which you, um, propel a ball towards an end goal. So, uh, I think in fact, in the development of Marble Madness, uh, Will Harvey started trying to make a mini golf game and the processors just weren't uh, powerful enough for that. And so it kind of got diluted down into what eventually became Marble Madness. Uh, Will Harvey worked on The Immortal in 1990. He worked on Wing Nuts Battle in the Sky, which is a uh, airplane dogfighting game for DOS. And he also worked on Future Cop LAPD, which was released in 1998 for probably DOS, but definitely on the original PlayStation. So Will Harvey has developed uh, several fun games. In Marble Madness, one or two players compete to maneuver their marble through an isometric maze as quickly as possible. Each of the game's six levels feature multiple pitfalls and increasingly difficult enemies, which must be avoided. The player's marble has no offensive or defensive weapons and must survive by the skill of their maneuvering ability alone. The faster the player reaches the end-level goal, the more bonus time will be added to their counter on the following level. The game ends when players run out of time. It is based on the arcade game released by Atari in 1984. Uh, the original arcade game was released on Atari System 1 hardware. This is the same PCB that powered Gauntlet and several other games. It was the first arcade game to be programmed in C, uh, it is listed as one of the first games to use stereo sound. It says, quote, one of the first games. Now, I have always heard that Gyrus is the first arcade game that has stereo sound, but there is a uh, qualifier here that says it was one of the first to use stereo sound. But then it goes on to say it was the first to use Yamaha's FM sound chip, which if you've listened to the music on the arcade version, you definitely can hear that. The arcade featured trackball controls, which made it somewhat unique. A sequel was planned for 1991, but tested poorly and was never officially released. Let's talk about the home release box of this game. 
Marble Madness was released in Electronic Arts record style packaging. That is the square uh, cardboard packaging that opens up. Uh, the front artwork has the red and blue marble chasing one another. It shows the isometric maze and the one of the game's enemies, a black marble, is hurling itself towards the red and blue marbles. Across the top, we have the words Marble Madness in yellow and blue lettering with motion lines drawn across them to show action. It says joystick or trackball recommended. Now, I have never played this game with a trackball. I never, back in the day, ever knew anybody who had a trackball for the Commodore 64, but it is listed there on the front, and that would be an interesting experiment to try sometime. Uh, the back of the box, like most electronic arts games, has lots of screenshots with little bits of information about the game across the top of the box. Of course, all everything on this box is tilted <laughs> at a 45-degree angle, all the text and all the pictures. Um, but at the what should be the top, it says... The game that drove them crazy at the arcades now comes home. Same exciting gameplay, same blow-away graphics, sounds, and music. And then it talks about uh, each of the screenshots is a uh, like a talking point. There's one about the animation. There's one about the unique sports head-to-head -head competition. There's one about the different levels. And then there's one that just basically says it's a game full of action. Uh, inside the box was a five inch by five inch square piece of paper that tells you how to load the game and gives you, uh, one hint about the instructions, which I'll talk about shortly. Uh, but that's it. There's no big manual or anything like that. Uh, once you load the game, uh, it's, it, uh, you're on your own. <laughs> uh, now after you load the game, while it's loading, you get some text that says Marble Madness by Will Harvey. Copyright 1984 by Atari. Copyright 1986 by Electronic Arts. Uh, then, from there, you start the game, and you are presented with the game screen that scrolls. Uh, it is a isometric game board, and you begin at the top on every level except for one. Uh, in one-player mode, you are the blue marble. If you play in a two-player mode, then player two will be a red marble. And you will use your joystick, most likely, unless you have a trackball, uh, to control your marble and roll it down towards the exit. Now, you will encounter uh, many obstacles on your way down. Some of them involve staying within a path area. Some of them involve staying on top of a narrow path area. There are other obstacles that you'll have to navigate around. And later on, you will find creatures uh, or let's just say sentient enemies who will either try to uh, stop your progress or knock you off of the 3D isometric play field. The controls are very simple. You use the joystick to move your marble in any of eight directions. The fire button gives you a turbo boost. Now, this is something that did not uh, exist in the arcade version. I believe this is only on the home versions. So if you're trying to get away from an enemy, you can press your button and move just a little bit faster temporarily. If you are playing this on uh, any system, uh, any home system, uh, maybe on a PC through an emulator or on an actual Commodore 64, you want to make sure that you're using a joystick that can easily move diagonally. The reason I say this is because the game's play field is isometric and rotated 45 degrees. So uh, you're not, it's kind of like Qbert. If you think about Qbert, you're not moving right, you're moving down and to the right or down and to the left. And you're going to have to stay on very thin platforms while holding a joystick exactly diagonal. So if you have, uh, I find that the uh, Epic's, 500XJ joystick, which is normally my joystick of choice, is not very good uh, for this game. Sometimes it's hard to immediately go from uh, the center position straight to diagonal without hitting, for example, left or down first. And sometimes uh, just a minor nudge is enough to knock you off of one of those very thin platforms down into the abyss. Um, so I played a lot of Marble Madness over the past few days. And just to uh, reset my bearings, I went and I played the arcade version 
of Marble Madness. Um, and so it's not always fair to compare an 8-bit version of a game to its arcade origins, but um, I thought I, I wanted to do that just because I wanted to make sure I wasn't misremembering how this game plays. Um, the Commodore 64 version of Marble Madness looks decent, but plays a lot slower than the arcade version. The arcade version, um, this almost sounds like a cop-out, but has an arcade speed to it. It's very fast, and so you, you have to move quickly. You have to dodge enemies quickly. In the Commodore 64 version, you have to plan your moves out <laughs> ahead of time. It almost feels like you are rolling through very thick air uh, or on on ground that has sticky tape or something. Uh, sometimes you have to anticipate what you're going to do in advance if you want to move around uh, one of the enemies that's coming towards you. Uh, it just doesn't have that same light feel of maneuvering your marble that the arcade version has. Um, now, the Commodore 64 has three voices on its sound chip, and this game offers both music and sound effects at the same time. So to do that, two of the games or of the machines, uh, sound voices are dedicated to the music and one is dedicated to sound effects. Now, normally, uh, that's really appreciated when programmers do that. However, here, uh, basically what you get is some grading versions of the music and not very good sound effects. Um, I don't know what the solution here would have been. Uh, they, they obviously went to great lengths to recreate the music from the arcade and it's recognizable. It's a little slower. Um, it's not as rich. And of course you're competing with that Yamaha sound chip that we mentioned. So it's not going to sound that good. And, uh, along those same lines, now that you've restricted your sound effects to a single voice on the chip, they're not going to sound as good as well. Maybe you could have had uh, the music with all three voices and then pause it when a sound effect happened, um, or, Maybe an even more stripped down version of the music with one voice with sound effects being two voices or something. I don't really know. I don't know what the solution is, but um, uh, it's it's okay until you go back and look and listen to the arcade version and the difference between the two will really uh, leap out at you. Um, the paths that you have to keep your marble on start off in the first level being two blocks wide and each block uh is basically the size of your marble sitting on the play field but very quickly you get two paths that are one block wide and using a joystick makes it very difficult uh to keep <laughs> uh, your marble on those thin pathways and if you get to a situation where you start going left, and it's almost like trying to overcorrect when you're on an icy road. Uh, you're hitting hitting the joystick left, right, left, right, left, and you'll never stay on that path. You will eventually fall off the path. So um, it's kind of difficult to do. And again, it really uh, the gameplay is really affected by the style or the type or brand of joystick that you have. Uh, I've been playing Commodore 64 games on my PC using the gamepad. And I found that to be almost impossible. It's very difficult to go straight to a diagonal with a, um, a Super Nintendo style gamepad on the Commodore 64. So uh, to to get the best gameplay, I switched over to an Atari 2600 style joystick, uh, and it was easier, but still not perfect. Now, one of the biggest flaws with this game is that there are only six levels. And when you begin the first level, you will see a counter that begins at the one minute mark counting backwards. So if you do the math, <laughs> it should be and is possible to beat this entire game in six minutes or less. I watched a playthrough of the Commodore 64 version on YouTube that is five minutes and 59 seconds long. So it is one second shy of six minutes. That includes about 40 seconds of the intro <laughs> and it includes a bonus level that was added to the home versions that I'll talk about shortly. Uh, and that's in six minutes. So if you are good at this game, you can play the entire game of Marble Madness in less than six minutes. Um, the uh, the bonus level 
Yeah, let's talk about the bonus level. The bonus level uh, takes place in outer space, so all the other levels are built up in a three-dimensional mode uh, so that they're very tall and you feel like that you're on, you know, maybe an island or a mountain or something like that. Uh, But the final version uh, has a lot of tricks. It has parts of the maze that appear and disappear, but it's all just one brick thick and floating out in outer space. So the rest of the background is black. Um, It's a uh, definitely an interesting design and it would be very difficult to uh, to do the first time that you played it if you hadn't seen someone else beat the level before and figure out exactly uh, the path that you need to take. Uh, in the game, this week I only played the one-player mode, which is just you against the clock. Uh, when you play the two-player mode, it's it's about racing to the clock, but it's also becomes a kind of a game of all out war, um, similar to joust and Mario brothers and many of the other two player games that I've talked about wizard of war. Uh, you can agree to not <laughs> harass each other, or you can just declare all out war, or you could do the third option, which is what I always do, which is I make a pact not to kill the other person. And then I immediately kill the other person on my, <laughs> on the first available chance. So, um, uh, so I think with two player, it might be uh, a little bit more fun, uh, because really it changes the entire scope of what the game is. It, it becomes, you don't want to just get to the bottom as fast as possible. You need to get to the bottom faster, uh, than your opponent. And that can come by performing some dirty tricks. The score in this game comes from two different things. One, there are things that you can perform in each level to gain bonus points. And then number two, you get bonus points for how quickly you complete each level. So that is how uh, you ultimately earn your score, which is awarded at the end of the game. Uh, the high score that I saw for the home version is 13,340 points by Ivan Pedrano. Uh, the high score for the arcade version is much higher. Uh, the point system works completely different in the arcade game. So, uh, so that score doesn't really compare to arcade scores. Uh, so we talked about the hidden level. I definitely wanted to mention that, uh, you can only normally reach the hidden level by beating all six of the game's built-in levels. Uh, however, there are many Commodore 64 cracked releases that include a, uh, a shortcut where you can hit the Commodore key or something like that, and you can go and play the secret level uh, and select it and just uh, jump over all the other levels if you just want to try it out. Or you can do what I do and uh, go right to YouTube and watch someone else do it. <laughs> Um, reviews of this game were wide. Uh, there were a lot of different opinions on one end of the spectrum. You had Commodore user who gave this game 90 out of a hundred. They said marble madness is frustrating, compelling, gripping, and most of all addictive. There is no excuse. You simply must buy it. Uh, Also near the top tier was 64 magazine, which gave it 80 out of a hundred on the other end of the spectrum. You had zap magazine, which gave it 40 out of a hundred that their summary was quote, a very disappointing and second rate conversion. Ouch. Uh, and Commodore force gave it 31 out of a hundred. So there was a lot of variation in those scores. Some people appreciated it for what it was. Some people were disappointed that it wasn't more like the arcade version itself. This month, I got several reviews from the uh, Amigos Retro Gaming Discord. Again, if you are one of my Patreon supporters, one of the benefits is getting access to the Amigos Discord, which is not open to the public. It's only open to people who support one of the shows on their network. Uh, I got, I believe, three quick comments about the game. The first was from Bodakar who says Marble Madness might be the earliest game that I associate deeply with its soundtrack. The unique ambient synth-based music was totally different than the carousel-like music of arcade games and their Commodore 64 ports up to that point. To me, taken in combination with the Escher-like isometric perspective elevates the game to a piece of art. Well, uh, I agree with most of what Boat says. Uh, It was definitely unique. Uh, The... 
Uh, anything that was isometric, you you jumped out. You know, uh, any isometric game, Cubert, uh, Congo Bongo, Zaxxon, any of those games with a uh, something that just set them apart from the other games. Uh, the display of Marble Madness is probably closest to Crystal Castles. I would say the way that the uh, the paths are built out of squares and built up, you know, into uh, tall type mountains. Uh, Boat also mentioned the synth-based music, which again uh, was uh, at least on the arcade version, thanks to that Yamaha chip. And uh, so it definitely left an impression on people. So I agree with uh, what Boat said. Lobsterminator from the Discord says arcades were not a common thing here in the 1980s. Now, a Lobsterminator, I believe, uh, lives in Helsinki. I could be wrong. I think that's where he's from. Uh, he says, I don't remember seeing Marble Madness and the famous trackball controller. Uh, or he says, I do remember it, but I don't think I ever played it. My first actual contact with the game was at a friend's house who was fortunate enough to have the first Amiga 500 in my friend's circle. The Amiga version looked really impressive, and the illusion of a 3D play field was perfectly done. I don't think I ever had the Commodore 64 version back then. Uh, Gameplay-wise, I've never been a huge fan, but I appreciate it for how unique and lasting the game still is. Perfect, simple concept. Well, uh, again, all good points. The Amiga version and a lot of the 16-bit versions are as good as the arcade, uh, version, I would say, um, the, uh, the thing about it being a simple concept is a good point to talk about. You know, uh, there are so many, uh, if you've ever, gosh, what's a good way to say this? You know, if you think about a classic game like space invaders, you could sit down anybody who's never played a video game and say, all right, this is space invaders move left and right, shoot those guys before they get you. And, and you can explain that entire game, you know, in just a matter of seconds. Um, but if you are a person like me who has had MAME for years and sometimes I will randomly go into MAME and pick a random ROM to play and I end up with arcade games that I can't figure out. I read the instructions. I try to play it. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, I don't understand the mechanics and I end up moving on to another one. So there is something to be said for arcade games that just inherently make sense. And Marble Madness inherently makes sense. Everybody gets the concept that you got to get the marble from the beginning of the maze to the end of the maze and avoid everything in between. It just makes total sense. So it's so, um, it's such a great, simple concept. And again, it's a game that can be beaten all every level in this game can be beaten in six minutes. So um, if you've ever played Marble Madness and not beaten it, and that would be me included, uh, it comes down to not uh, because of the length of the game, but because of the skill required to maneuver through each level. Uh, the last comment I got was from Joe Sharippa. Uh, Joe and his brother Steve are both uh, Patreon supporters. They've been supporting my stuff for a long time. Uh, Joe says, we had this game. Uh, it was hard, too hard, frustrating. We played for hours and hours and couldn't even get to level three. It was like the computer was cheating. Steve would take the controller and say, I could do it. Let me try. Then after he failed to get further, I would say, I would know what to do. Let me try. And we would pass the joystick back and forth with no progress made. Well, um, it's funny. Arcade games, uh, video games are funny that way. That's always, um, you know, if you think about Pong, uh, the only way to lose at Pong is to miss the ball. So you, you, in your head, every time you miss one, you go, oh boy, if I'd just been a little higher, a little lower. I mean, really, that's the only two options. <laughs> uh, you go, I, I could have kept playing. Uh, even something like, like Pac-Man, you go, why didn't I see that ghost? I'm going to try this again. I'm going to watch better for the ghosts or Donkey Kong. I'm going to, boy, that last barrel got me, but I'm going to try it again. And so it's the games that you didn't die because you didn't understand or, or, um, you know, what's worse is like when you're playing a racing game and you run out of fuel and you never saw any fuel. And so it's like through no fault of your own, you didn't crash. You didn't go off the road. It's just the game ran out of time and killed you. Uh, it's so frustrating. And so a game like this, like Marble Madness, again, 
We understand the concept. We know how to get there. We just got to do it a little faster. We just got to, if we could only shave off one second, if we could only not hit that one thing or only stay on that rail uh, and not lose the time by falling off, it seems like every time you get back to it, in your head you think, I could do it this time. And so that's one of the things that makes this game, in general, an addictive game and worthy of returning to. So thanks uh, to everybody who submitted those. If you want to submit uh, your thoughts on a future game, you can do that through the Discord server or uh, through my Patreon page, either one of those places. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the ports. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Marble Madness was released in arcades by Atari in 1984. It was ported to lots and lots of systems. Uh, the list on Moby Games says the Amiga, the Apple II, the Apple II GS, it's a different version, the Atari ST, Blackberries, the FM Towns, Game Boy, Game Boy Color, Game Gear, Genesis, NES, PC-98, PC Booter, Sega Master System, Sharp X68000. Um, that... But that's not all of them for sure, because I know, uh, for example, there is a version in uh, for the Sega Genesis. I think it's maybe a Japanese-only release, but uh, uh, there is a port of Marble Madness, which is almost arcade perfect. It is a wonderful, wonderful version. Um, also, Marble Madness got wrapped up into a lot of those Midway collections, like the Midway Arcade Collection or Midway Arcade Treasures. Uh, so that was another way, and that was available for Xbox and uh, you know GameCube and, and PlayStation 2 and all those types of systems as well. So there's a lot of different places you could play Marble Madness. Now, uh, if you have bought one of those... Um, uh, joystick, like an arcade style joystick that's USB that has a trackball. You can also play any of those emulated versions and try to get it to work uh, with the trackball. And that would probably uh, be the ultimate way to play it if you were going to play it at home. Now, uh, Marble Madness, as we mentioned, was released in arcades in 1984. These home versions started appearing in 1986. In 1991, Atari went back to the well and was ready to do Marble Madness. Oh, it's called Marble Man, Marble Madness 2. Uh, this is a three-player game. So now you have three people competing against one another. Uh, the first prototype used trackballs, and it was put, it was tested. It was put into test locations, and it did not test well. So they switched it to joysticks. They thought that was the problem. Uh, so they, the second prototype used joysticks. It also did not test well. And you have to think about what it was competing with in 1991. I mean, now you're at like Street Fighter II. You're at a different era of video games. And so basically, Atari pulled the plug and never officially released Marble Man, Marble Madness 2. Now... There is video of the game available on YouTube. Uh, it doesn't look all that different from Marble Madness. If you saw Marble Madness 2, you would say, oh, yeah, that's Marble Madness. <laughs> I mean, it looks uh, very, very similar to the original. It has some updated colors. It has some updated uh, music and sounds. It also has uh, some digitized speech. There's some voices in there. There are new enemies um, with, uh, it, the game is more cute. I would say like there is a, uh, a sand pail that has a face and he's pouring sand. Uh, your marble starts off with a face at the very beginning. So they, they made it appeal. I think, you know, maybe to a slightly younger demographic than the original. Um, but as I said, there were only, uh, according to legend, there were only 12 prototypes and they have been, uh, squirreled away in the hands of collectors uh, since 1991. That is until earlier this year in, in uh, 2022, where someone dumped and leaked the game. Uh, and so now you can finally download and play this game in MAME. So if you want to check out Marble Madness 2, it is available for MAME. Uh, or again, there is footage of it on YouTube if you just want to go see uh, what this actually looked like. Now, if MAME is not your bucket and you want to own an original for the Commodore 64, you better get your wallet out. 
the last copy that sold sold for $75, and that is a complete copy, and that included shipping. Uh, the last version of the cassette that I saw sold went for $20, which includes shipping. There are multiple copies of the game available on eBay right now for $75 to $125. Uh, I don't think that reflects the game's play. I think that reflects the game's popularity. Uh, I think it reflects how recognizable the game is. Even people that weren't into video games or arcade games have probably heard of Marble Madness. And so when you get a game like that, that has, uh, you know, recognition just by the title, it's going to cost money to own it. And that's what I have here. So now let's talk about my personal memories of playing Marble Madness back in the day. I remember playing Marble Madness, both a one-player version and two-player with my buddy Jeff on the Commodore 64. I think, in general, people misremember how slow this game is. Um, It's slow on multiple levels. The gameplay itself is slow, and then there is loading that takes place in between each level, which really slows down the momentum of the game. And also, uh, not that it really slows down the momentum, but the game is stored on two sides of a disc. And so not only is there loading between levels, but at some point, if you get far enough, you'll have to flip the disc over, uh, which will take even more time. So I'm not sure that people are truly remembering how it plays. I think when people, their memories, at least my memories of Marvel Madness of playing it, I think have been mixed up with the arcade version. Uh, if you can play one of the other versions like, uh, on MAME or the Genesis or the Amiga, those other versions, I don't know that I would revisit this version. Um, I do remember playing it and obviously it was a, it was a nice port for kids that couldn't always get up and get a ride to the nearest arcade. So at that time, I do remember it looking and feeling very impressive. It's just going back to it. uh, For some reason, a little bit of the wind is out of my sails. For graphics, I give Marble Madness four out of five marbles. It looks very close to the arcade version with just some minor details having been removed. For music, I give it three out of five marbles. The tunes are there. They've just been stripped down a little bit. Same for the sound effects, three out of five marbles. Uh, You do have sound effects. Things sound okay. They just don't sound perfect. Uh, Overall, I have to give Marble Madness three out of five marbles. It is a slower version of the game that's good on the Commodore 64, but great on some of the 16-bit platforms. Thanks again for tuning in to Sprite Castle. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hara at robohara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a message on the podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. All patrons of my shows get behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. Sprite is available from iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, the RSS feed at podcast.roboherr.com, and through the official Amigos podcast feed at anchor.fm forward slash Amigos podcast. To hear more podcasts from me, like You Don't Know Flack, Cactus Flax, Throwback Reviews, and Multiple Sadness, visit podcast.roboherr.com for links and information about these shows. Many of the news articles and game details for Sprite Castle come from websites such as Commodore News, Indie Retro News, Vintage is the New Old, the Commodore Scene Database, Lemon64, and Moby Games. Thanks again for listening. Now get back to playing with your marbles, and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle.
finally, this podcast would not be possible without the support of Patreon listeners like these. For my 8-bit supporters, that includes Alan Hennessy, Alan Hudgens, Armandon Restel, Brian Barr, Chris Folds, C-Dubs, Cowbird Boy, Dan Paradroid Hebe, Daniel Jaleppa, Dave Velociraptor, Dave Zilly, Happy Birthday Dave! David Hearn, David Modelak, Eric Stranisi, Extend to the Jam, Gabe DeGenero, Garrett Allier, Gary Heather, Hacker Radio, Jake Nonamaker, Jason Warns, John Bodakar Schaller, John Treholt, Jose Cazada, Joshua Eckroth, Mark Alley, Matthew Perron, Mike McLaughlin, Mitsuyama, Mr. Bundy, Nathan Dagenhart, Olav Hope, Patrick Markey, Paul Morano, Petzl, Rad Max, Rydar and Christopher Bow, Retro Trace, Robbie Ray, Robot Doctor 82, Scott Lambert, Scott Meredith, Scrap Arcade, Stephen Bird, Steve Rasmussen, The Slow Norris, Travis Gossie, Zeke Pabsky, Zerfall, and the mysterious Cobra Kai. And for my 16-bit supporters, Bill Spear, Boatshead Tavern BBS, Dan Creek, Drone Doctor, Edward Smith, Graham Vebke, Joe Sharippa, John Morrison, Matt Nicholson, Matt Smith, Michael Ryan, Paul Nermix Nermanen, Rick Reynolds, John Hudson Mackay and Scott Van Drasick, Steve Sharippa, Vintage Volts, Zyke, and Mr. Wacky. 